Spoke Media. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. A few years ago, Tony Andrews was in the middle of her workday in Dallas, Texas, when her phone rang. It was her sister-in-law calling from Hawaii, the island of Oahu, where Tony grew up. Tony, her sister-in-law said, I'm standing in the cemetery on the North Shore, and we can't find Larry's grave. The headstone is gone. I'm like, what do you mean you can't find it? I mean, someone stole it? I mean, what? <laughs> you know, what happened? And she said, no, it's gone. It's not here. And that hurt my heart because I thought, if that's gone, then nobody's ever going to know that he was here. Tony grew up with five older brothers. She doesn't remember who first told her that her oldest brother, Larry, had been murdered. Tony and her family were part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what many people call the Mormon Church. When she was four years old, in 1966, Larry left for a two-year proselytizing mission in Brazil, and he never came home. So Tony grew up visiting Larry at that cemetery. My mom would say, okay, well, we're going to go see Larry this weekend. And we'd jump in the car, we'd take our little road trip out to the North Shore, go to the cemetery, which was, for me, seeing Larry. That was my relationship with him, was going with my parents to his grave. That was my relationship with Larry. Tony knew, of course, that her brother was gone. But growing up, it always felt like he was more gone than he needed to be. The family never talked about him. In our family, it was like he ceased to exist. He was that entity that was always there. But nobody acknowledged it. Tony's brother and sister-in-law did eventually find the headstone. It turned out that the ground where Larry was buried was sandy. This was Hawaii. And so the stone had sunk. They located the spot where it had slipped down into the ground and had one of their cousins help haul it back up. But Tony couldn't shake this feeling that Larry had almost slipped away for good. Last year, 2019, marked 50 years since Larry's death. And Tony decided it was time. She wanted to start talking about Larry. And in June of last year, she wrote a note to us here at Family Ghosts. My family never really talked about Larry after his death, she wrote. It was like an unwritten rule. There was a conspiracy of silence. So, on a very hot weekend in September, our producer Sally Helm went down to Texas. Come on in. Hey, Tony, nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. Tony and I spent a whole weekend sitting in a little bedroom in her house, the Blue Room, talking about Larry. His disappearance broke her family apart. We never talked about it. I feel like it fractured us. Tony knows there's nothing she can do to bring Larry back. But ever since she learned the story of his death, the real story, she's been hoping he can help her put the pieces back together. He deserved, he, he does deserve a legacy. If it's not children or grandchildren, he deserves a legacy. From Spoke Media and WALT, 
you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is episode 27, The Mission. Our story continues after the break. When Tony told me about her childhood in the town of Kailua, I kept seeing this image of a little girl sitting by herself, and she's in a sweet-smelling, overgrown flower jungle. There's flowers everywhere. I mean, our backyard, we had just trees and plumeria trees, and we had an avocado tree, and my mom had ginger root growing, you know, and I mean, it just... It just grew. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the center of her family's life. Tony spent a lot of time in primary, the church's program for kids. I loved going to primary, loved it. We got to sing songs. We got to, you know, learn about different gospel principles. Other than my friends in the neighborhood, all my friends were church friends because that's what we did. That was our world. So there was the whole universe of the church. But I picture Tony alone in that flowering Plumeria garden because in her family, the Figueras, she was a bit of an outsider. She had five brothers, and she was the youngest sibling by a lot. Larry, the oldest, was 17 years older than Tony. Then there was Russell, then Gerald, then Nathan, and her youngest brother, Kevin, was still a good six years older. So Tony always felt like she was on the edge of the action. I did a lot of watching my brothers play, or because they were so much older than me, so I guess I really hang out with them. Um, you know, it was the boys and then Tony. Because she was so much younger, Tony doesn't have a lot of memories of her brother Larry. She was only four years old when he left for Brazil and never came back. But she's heard from other people that they spent a lot of time together. I guess, apparently, I was close to Larry. And I don't, re- I don't remember that. I don't remember that I was close to him. But I've been told that he and I had a bond. Larry was close with all his siblings. And he was very active in the church. And so, when he came of age, it was not a surprise that he wanted to go on a mission. Tony describes this as a rite of passage for young men in the church. And she says it also speaks to a certain level of religious worthiness. It's an honor. You go to preach the gospel and try to preach it so that people will convert to the church. Larry was sent to Brazil for his mission. There are pictures of him taking off from the airport, big smile on his face, decked out in a heap of lays. Tony was at the airport when Larry left, but... She doesn't really remember it. I don't remember him leaving, but I remember him not being there. During those years that Larry was gone, the family didn't hear from him much, which was typical. These rules have since been relaxed, but back in the late 60s, missionaries were only allowed to call their families on Christmas and Mother's Day. And so, in the weeks leading up to Larry's return, Tony remembers the excitement in the house. But then... Two weeks before he was supposed to come back, 
the family learned that he wasn't. A bishop came to their house and told them Larry was dead. Tony remembers the day that they heard the news. She was outside riding bikes with her brother Kevin. And then my brother Nathan came out and said, you guys got to come in. And we're like, why? (laughs) You know, I remember being like, why do I got to come in? And he's like, you guys got to come in. The memory of the next few weeks, for Tony, is a memory of confusion. Big things, bad things were happening. Hushed phone calls, heavy silence in the house. But she didn't really understand what was going on, just that Larry wasn't coming home. And then came the funeral. I remember that his casket was there, and I wasn't quite sure what it was. Tony only has one real memory of the funeral. There were two pictures of Larry on top of the casket, his high school graduation portrait and a portrait he took before leaving on his mission. For years, Tony told me, that's what she saw when she thought of Larry. Two pictures on a white casket. After the funeral, they went to the cemetery. I remember them lowering his casket into the ground. I remember feeling some anxiety about that. I was like, what What are we doing, you know? And then somebody handed me a flower to throw in there. And they said, throw it in. So I threw it in. And then they ended the service, you know, the graveside service, and they started shoveling dirt on there. And I thought, what is going on? <laughs> you know, what is going on? And then we left and... There was never Larry again. I mean, it was like never again. Tony says her parents stopped talking about him. She'd get a detail here and there. He liked lemon meringue pie. His favorite hymn was, Oh, How Lovely Was the Morning. Larry was present in the house in a way because Tony's mom put a framed picture of him on an end table. Tony thought of it as a shrine. Now, today, she can't remember exactly who told her what, but Tony grew up thinking that Larry had been murdered. It must have just been something that they talked about in front of me or became kind of like the spin. Being murdered on his mission made Larry a martyr. And Tony was proud of that. She says she'd talk about it to family, to friends, to her friend's parents. And as she got older, she started asking questions about Larry's death. I had to find out where he went. It just was always a stirring in my soul. But she felt like no one else seemed to need those answers. It was yet another way that she felt isolated from her family. And as the years went by, there were fewer and fewer people to ask. One by one, Russell, Gerald, Nathan, and Kevin all left home. Tony was still just a kid, and her brothers were already starting families of their own. They weren't around. They weren't around for me. Um, they had their own lives. They'd lived their own lives. They're making their own lives, and it was just me. Um, did you did you miss them? Did you feel that lack? I felt abandoned, for sure. With her brothers out of the house, Tony felt even more alone with her burning questions about Larry. She just wanted simple answers— If Larry was murdered on his mission, how come we don't know who killed him? 
She tried asking her parents and other elders in the church community. And so then I started getting, oh, you know what, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. We don't talk about that. And you know, I didn't like that. I was like, mm, no, someone's got to give me more than that. But I never got it. To make things even more difficult, Tony's parents were getting old. Her mom had a stroke when Tony was 12, and her dad had an electrical accident when she was 13. Tony, the only kid left in the house, took care of them. But they never wanted to talk about Larry. She knew the answers must be out there. In fact, she'd heard that Larry had a journal that had been sent back from Brazil with his effects. Her older brother Russell had it. She said she'd drop hints sometimes, like, man, I'd really love to read that journal. But Russell wouldn't give it to her. No matter where she looked, who she tried to talk to, she couldn't get the story. And I didn't get anything until I was like an adult. Finally, somebody threw me a bone. It was around 1999. Tony was in her late 30s and living in Texas with her husband and kids. An old friend from Hawaii also lived nearby. And one day, they got a visit from Bishop Austin and his wife, Sister Austin. They'd helped run the church community back in Kailua, the time where Tony grew up. So Tony went over to her friend's house to see them. So we kind of was, you know, hanging out a little bit. And and I asked the bishop's wife, um, I said, hey, you know, I've always wanted to know what happened to Larry. You know, does, did anybody ever find out any information? And she looked at me and she said, I'll send you something. And that was all she said. A few weeks later, Tony's friend got in touch with her and said, hey, Sister Austin sent something for you. I'll bring it to dinner. I'm like, awesome. So we go out to dinner, my husband, the kids, and we're standing in front of a Chinese restaurant. And she hands me this envelope, and I open up the envelope. And then I started reading it, and it was like the whole world around me stopped. It was like just like tunnel vision on this piece of paper. I didn't even know what I was reading until I kind of got into it. It talks about presiding, and then it, you know, says the, the bishop's name, and I thought, oh, it's a church service. Tony has been to a million church services, but she sees that at this service, one of her relatives delivered a prayer. And I read the prayer. He talked about how he was hoping the Heavenly Father would um, be merciful and kind to the family of Larry Figuera. When I read that, I was like, this is his funeral, um, which, well, even now, it kind of just, it kind of just sucked the air out of me. Tony was there at the funeral for her brother Larry, but all she remembered were those two pictures on top of the casket. She experienced it all as a child. But now, as an adult? Now I was going to get a chance to go back to that day. Tony started reading through the record of the funeral service. They sang Larry's favorite hymn, Oh, How Lovely Was the Morning. After the opening hymn, the eulogy is given. And they talked about Larry and, you know, how Larry was a good son, an obedient son, cheerful. That's a word that they use in the eulogy, cheerful. And then it just got more and more difficult as I read. 
The funeral record had a transcript of Larry's eulogy. It was given by a close friend of the family. He talks about going over to Tony's house in the days before the funeral and the sadness he found there. He says, what could have brought Larry to the point of no return, to the point where it seemed that the only way out was to take his own life? When I read that sentence, I think I had to read it like three or four times. Take his own life, take his own life, take his own life. I had never heard that. The breath got sucked out of me again when I first read that sentence because that was not even something that had even entered my mind. I was, why didn't anybody tell me? It made Tony think about the silence that had always bothered her so much. She suddenly saw that silence differently. So really we're ashamed of him. That's why we didn't talk about him. That's where my mind went. Now, whether that was the truth or not, that's where my mind went. She couldn't ask her parents whether this was the reason, and she couldn't confront them. They were both gone. And as for her older brothers? It didn't seem like they would tell me the truth, because they already hadn't told me the truth. That night, reading the eulogy in the parking lot of the Chinese restaurant... Tony realized she'd been looking for answers to the wrong question. There's been an evolution of my journey. You know, first it was, who did it? And then it became, who is he? Who is my brother? Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. Spoke Media. When Tony learned that her brother Larry had killed himself, it was, of course, a surprise, a shock even. But in a way, it was also familiar. Tony's never been formally diagnosed, but she has her own very personal relationship with depression. And she says she's good at covering it up. I have some very good friends that I've known for a really long time. And I'm, I would venture to say they don't think I have depression. Because when I'm in front of people... I'm on. You're not going to see what's really inside. You're going to think that I am just perfect, that life is good, that I'm happy, that there's no problems. But you don't know that I'm dying inside, that my insides feel like they're coming out through my pores, that they're scratching their way out. But you're not going to see that. I'm going to act totally calm, cool, and collected in front of you. So when she learned that Larry had killed himself and that, according to the eulogy, no one had seen it coming, Tony was like, you know, I get it. I mean, there is a way, I think, in which, like, seeing that come up in a family can be both scary and comforting. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. It was scary. I mean, it is scary, but it was comforting to know that I wasn't by myself on that. Because, I I mean, I've attempted suicide and it was comforting to me to see that I wasn't alone because I always felt really alone. Um, But then it was also sad that he didn't have somebody that he was able to say, I'm so close to the undertow and I don't know how to, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting drug under and I don't know how to swim out. In her 20s, when Tony came close to suicide herself, something stopped her. 
I don't know what made me pull over and decide that I shouldn't do it and that I should just go home. I just did. I just pulled over and turned my car around and I went back to my apartment. So maybe he was the angel on my shoulder that spoke in my ear and overcame all those other thoughts that were in my head. At the time this happened, Tony hadn't yet learned the truth about Larry's death. And so years later, when she read the eulogy, she found out that she hadn't been alone in her family in this way that she had thought. I think it made me feel bonded. As horrible as that connection is, it was a connection nonetheless. People had always told Tony that she and Larry had a bond. And now she felt it. And it made her want to know him all the more. And also, she felt like she'd been lied to for years. And now she wanted the truth, or as near as she could get it. And so... That was kind of when the internet was just starting, I guess 1999, around around that time. You know, I had your whole AOL dial-up, right? <laughs> Log in. And I started searching pages, or whatever they called them back then, I don't remember. But I tried to find pages that had to do with the Mormon mission in Brazil. And I found a few where I could leave a message on like a message board, right? So she'd write on these boards and say, hey, I'm the sister of Larry Figuera. You may remember him. He died on his mission in Brazil in 1969. And I got a few responses from missionaries, but but not very much. Either he was a great guy, we knew him, or we've only heard good things about him kind of thing. And I found out how to get a hold of the mission president. The mission president. He would have been the person in charge of all the missionaries in Larry's area of Brazil. He would definitely have been involved when Larry died. And Tony thought he would have the full story. So she reached out and she got a response. A long, handwritten letter. In it, the mission president seems to tell Tony everything he knew. That Larry had hung himself that he wished he'd been able to see the signs that Larry was struggling. And he also mentioned something that made Tony sit up. He said that after Larry died, he had looked back into Larry's journal for signs of depression. And Tony was like, ah, yes, the journal. The same journal she'd been asking her oldest brother Russell about for years. How many years? Oh my gosh, girl, a lot of years, a lot of years. I mean, like five? Oh, oh no. I mean, we're talking, uh, how old am I? 57? I mean, at least since I've been a teenager. So multiple years. Um, Like like 20. Forever. I mean, I just feel like forever I've been asking for the journal. Over the years, Tony and her brothers, they'd kind of fallen out of touch. There was a lot of grief and misunderstanding between them that they had never talked about. But from time to time, Tony would give Russell a call. We would kind of have start chatting, you know, blah, 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 have low, you know, small talk. And then I'd be like, hey, you have Larry's journal, right? And he'd say, yeah. And I'd say, you know, I, I know it's precious to you. I, I just want to see it. I said, I just want to make a copy of it. He's like, well, it's a lot of pages and, and it'll be expensive. I said, I'll pay for it. I, I'll just, I just want to see it. And he would always say I he would let me have it or let me see it. Sure, no, I'll show it to you, Shannon. By the way, Tony's brothers call her Shannon. But then it just never came to fruition, and I would get so frustrated. And then, 
then, about two years ago, she had an occasion to see her brothers. One of them, Nathan, got sick. And it was serious enough that Tony thought she ought to go see him. Which was a pretty big deal, because they hadn't seen each other in a really long time. As she's arranging this visit, she calls Russell to see if he can come too. He can't make it, but they get to chatting. And then, as was a habit at this point, Tony asked about the journal. I'm not super sly. I probably just said, hey, (laughs) about Larry's journal. Um, He said, yeah, I have it. And I said, you know, well, you know, maybe maybe if I stop by, I can see it. And he said this, and I don't even know if he remembers saying this, but this, like, is etched in my mind. He just said, you know, Shannon, it's always been for you. Tony drove to Wisconsin, where Nathan lives, and they had a great visit. Afterwards, on her way back to Texas, she and her husband stopped to see Russell in Tennessee. They spent a day together, not talking about the journal at all. But just as Tony was about to leave... Russ said, hey, don't don't go yet. And I said, okay. And then he went somewhere. He was gone for a while. And when he came back into the room, he had this brownish-purple book in his hand. And he goes, hey, Shannon, come here and sit next to me. And I said, okay. Engraved in gold lettering, it has Lawrence Figuera on it. And I just start, like, crying. And he and I sat together on his couch in his living room. And we opened up and we touched every single page of that journal together. And then we were done with it. He said, you can have it. And I don't think I have been more humbled in my whole life as when he handed me that journal because it was Larry. This this really is him. It's his handwriting. It's his, it's him. Tony took the journal back to her hotel room. She stayed up reading it all night. It was so beautiful to read his own words and realize that, you know what, he wasn't a myth. Tony has the journal now. She says it's her most prized possession. During my visit with her, we looked at it together. There it is. See? Wow, yeah, there's his name. I know, crazy. So every page of this journal, okay, so um, he has a a map of Brazil in here. It's kind of like a scrapbook in a journal, which I thought was kind of neat. The first pages of Larry's journal are full of things he saved, like a sheet of instructions from the church about missionary attire. Raincoats are permissible in tan and other conservative solid colors. A chopsticks wrapper from a Chinese restaurant in Sao Paulo where apparently he liked to eat. A valentine from a girl back home. On one page, a child's drawing. That's a self-portrait that I drew for him. Wow. Right? I know. That's what I'm saying. It made it so real for me. This made me cry when I saw it. As Tony read the journal, she saw this regular, real person emerging. Like, Larry makes these stupid jokes. We took a footmobile to different parts of the city. Oh, we walked. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) He's really corny. That's kind of fun that he's a little bit, you know, a little bit corny. It's kind of nice to hear you making fun of him a little bit. I feel like that is another, like, sibling thing. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and I would have never done that. I mean, like I said, he was always just kind of, like, on this pedestal, but... Yeah, he is, he's a little bit corny. <laughs> Larry also writes about some minor rule-breaking. He talks about going to the movies, which they weren't supposed to be doing. 
Larry seems to do it a lot. Went to a flick called Dr. Doolittle. How funny. We headed to see Thoroughly Modern Millie, Planet of the Apes. He went to the movies again. He loves those movies. Um, so he, he tattles on himself a little bit in here. This stuck out to Tony. Larry, who she'd always thought of as this golden boy, he breaks the rules in these little ways. One night he stays up late when a friend is in town. That's also against the rules. He sneaks in a phone call he's not supposed to make. I always felt like the only rebel in the family, but he's kind of a lot like me where he wants to do the right thing. But, you know, maybe we'll just like push the envelope a little bit and see how much we can get away with. So that was kind of neat. It was neat to kind of see our personalities are a little bit similar. Um, maybe, maybe he would have got me, you know. Reading through the journal with Tony, it did feel like I'd met Larry. But I was also thinking, this isn't Larry. Not really. This is a book made out of paper and ink and photos and ticket stubs and old wrappers from Brazilian soda bottles. Larry is gone. It sounds like what happened for you is that he's he's here now. Like, he's yeah. real now. Mm-hmm. And he, in a different way, he's also gone. Yeah. And does his goneness feel different? Yes. Do you know how? His goneness feels like a loss of what would have been, what could have been. I'm sad that he's not here any longer. I'm sad that we don't have the from here on. It took Tony decades to finally get her hands on the journal. And in retrospect, she says she's grateful that she got it when she did, because she could see what was there, not just what wasn't. If I'd found it, you know, when I was 30, I think I would have been disappointed. I think I would have been, well, there's no answers here. How does this help me? And the answers that I wanted are not the answers that I got, but what I got was even better. The thing is, over the course of all those decades of wanting the truth about Larry and feeling resentment towards her brothers— Little by little, Tony's feelings started to change. Slowly and sort of just naturally, her anger began to fade. I think that you just come to a point in your life where that's a lot to keep carrying. It just gets heavy. Also over those years, things happened in Tony's life that helped her to empathize with her parents and her brothers who hadn't been able to talk to her about Larry's death. Tony's first husband died unexpectedly. She raised two kids. She eventually got remarried. And all of that and the various things that came up along the way, it just made her see things differently. You just realize that people do the best they can, and you've done the best you can. So you're just going to have to accept that people did the best they could do. So when she finally got the journal... Larry's not the only brother Tony got back. I'm just so ashamed of myself for not bringing it up. Our story continues after the break. Tony and I spent hours and hours in the blue room talking about Larry. And it felt, in some small way, 
like we'd brought him back. But by the end of the weekend, it was clear that there was one more thing we needed to do. There were some other conversations that Tony finally felt ready to have. When Larry died, Tony didn't just lose one brother. She lost the other four, too. Russell, Gerald, Nathan, and Kevin. Tony told me when we talked that she and her brothers love each other. But Larry's death had shattered their family. She kept using that word, shattered. So we called them. All four of the living Figuera boys to finally talk about Larry. The siblings had never really talked about him, just snippets here and there over 50 years. And when Tony got on the line, she wasn't looking for revenge or apologies. She just wanted to finally talk. Hey, it's me, Russ. Hey, it's me, Tony. Hi. Hey, Shannon, how are you? (laughs) I'm well. How are you, my big brother? I'm good. I'm fine. On these calls, Tony's brothers told stories about Larry that she'd never heard, about learning to surf with him. He said, now when the waves come, just jump on the board. About asking him for girl advice. I don't understand their their thinking patterns. What can I do? (laughs) And he said, "Uh, and you think I do? (laughs) About the time Russ was hassling Larry about his darts game, and Larry threw a dart right at him. Every time he would miss, I'd laugh and just have a good old time. And he told me, he said, if you laugh one more time. Darts aside, they remembered Larry as the peacemaker, the leader, the oldest brother. Larry was my protector. He was uh, always the one there who was watching out for me. And because they were older than she was, they saw more than Tony did. They all remembered the day that they found out Larry was gone. Two of Tony's older brothers, Gerald and Nathan, finally told her the story of the day the bishop came to the house. He pulled this piece of paper out of his pocket and read it to my mother. And as they told her, they also revealed a grief that Tony had never witnessed before in her brothers. And my mother knew exactly what was was being said before he even finished it. And um, she, she just started to back away from him, you know, to say, no, no. Tony had no memory of her mom's reaction. Her brother Nathan said, that's because she left before you got into the room. Longest time, mom just shut herself up in her room. And there was nothing any of us could do for her. I had never... I had never seen my parents cry before until they cried that day. And there was no consulting them Oh, boy, I had buried that in my mind. (sighs) All the brothers said this in one form or another. I haven't talked about this. I've put this away. Gerald told us he'd cried more about Larry's death on this phone call than he had in the past 50 years. And that's in some ways a result of this silence that Tony had found so difficult. The way the family never talked about Larry. She'd imagined that the brothers were all talking about him together, and she was left out. But they said, no, we weren't. We've each been dealing with this on our own. 
Tony had been dealing with it alone, too. But she sort of felt like, well, I've always been alone in this family. At one point during our first conversation with Tony's brother, Russell, he asked her, did you feel like you missed out being born so long after the rest of us? I did miss it. I I felt like I was not ever really a part of the family. Yeah, I could see that. I could see how you'd feel like you're by yourself, like an like a only child. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. That must have been tough. I've never really, I should have given that more thought. I feel like I missed the boat not having to get to know you a little bit better. You know, I mean, I know you pretty good. I love you so much. But I just think sometimes that you just miss out on so much that could have changed the direction of your life. Gerald said something similar. I'm sorry that I left you with so much after Larry died. You know, I've always felt bad that we left you and Kevin holding the bag. Really, seriously. And you especially. Because you were the youngest and everything got dumped on you. He said, I think I was kind of running away from how hard it was. And I think that's what I did in a large part. When I moved away, it was great. I was I was just going to get away and I could be on my own and be free. And we did you dirt by letting you hold all that trash that we left behind. And I, you know, so I, I apologize for everything I've ever done. Well, your apology is accepted, but not necessary, okay? Because you just had to live your life. I mean, and I get it. I mean, I, I really do get it. Tony hadn't gone looking for these apologies. They came out totally naturally. But she did have something that she wanted to clear the air about. Why didn't anybody tell me that Larry had killed himself? She asked Russell first. I mean, I don't know if you know that I never knew that he killed himself. Really? I didn't know until I was married, living here in Texas. You're kidding. Um, No, I'm not kidding. Um, I didn't know. I thought I heard the whole, you know, he was murdered on his mission thing. Oh my goodness. Um, so mom and dad thought that their whole life, Tony. I didn't know that you didn't know. My thinking was that you knew all along because you were there at home. Yeah, I guess I could see how you could see that. But I mean, I was what, six? Yeah. But as you grew older, I'm sure they would have told. Well, Mm -mm. they didn't tell you. Yeah. I mean, and I know that wasn't anything anybody did on purpose, but, but the feeling was still there, you know? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I I can totally understand that. I'm, I'm just so ashamed of myself for not bringing it up. Well, you know, it was hard for you. Like you said, you didn't talk about it. And we haven't talked about it. This is the first time we've ever talked about it. That's true. With Tony's other brothers, it was the same story. They thought she knew. And in some cases, they didn't know themselves. Her brother Nathan, he actually had a very similar experience to the one that Tony had with the eulogy. He didn't find out that Larry had killed himself until he was an adult. And he talked about that experience a lot like she had. I have a, a gambit of emotions on that day. I was angry. I was sad. And I was really, really PO'd by people from hiding something that to be, doesn't need to be explained away. This needs to be mentioned and told to people. This is what happened. Like Tony, Nathan had heard the eulogy, which made it clear that Larry had killed himself. And he was way older than she was at the time. 
when Larry died, Nathan was 19. But somehow, the way that their parents had reacted and all the silence in the years after Larry's death, it meant that Nathan heard the information in the eulogy and still didn't know it. The silence was that vast. It swallowed this story up, and no one talked to each other to help recover it. Why are we so compartmentalized? Why are we in these little boxes all over the... Because I think we're afraid to talk to each other. We're afraid we're going to hurt each other. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be hurt anymore. I agree. And I want this. I want us to not be afraid to talk about Larry. Compartmentalized. Words like that kept coming up when Tony was talking with her brothers. With Russell, Tony described it like this. You know, the, the, the heart of our family yeah. is shattered. And yeah. you have a piece, and Gerald has a piece, and Nathan has a piece, and Kevin has a piece, and I have a piece. Yeah. But we don't, the pieces, we're just carrying them around. Yeah. We're just carrying them around. And when we see each other, or we talk to each other, it's, oh, yeah, hey, everything's good. You know, high five, hugs, kisses. But we don't ever resolve it. As Nathan put it, we should have done this a long time ago. It needed to get it out there, you know, so we can become a unit again because we are disjointed. I think you've opened a good door for us to step through. For a long time, Tony had felt like Russell had a missing piece that she needed the journal. And Russell told me he'd kept it because he needed it, too. It was part of him. And it was part of him that I, I, I kind of kept with me. But uh, I realized that, honestly did realize that Tony didn't know him. Mm-hmm. And maybe this was some way, you know, he could come through to her and she could get to know him as an individual, as a person. So I thought, don't be selfish, which I felt like I was being selfish every time I talked to her. I thought, okay, it's time. It's time to give it to her before she gets too old to read. (laughs) (laughs) Tony said she never felt like Russell was being selfish. She felt like he was being protective of what little he had of Larry. And when Tony finally got the journal, it felt like getting her brother back. Even though she knows it's not really him. It's just a series of fragments. It can't bring Larry back to life. But it can bring the other fragments together. The ones that Tony and her brothers were carrying on their own. I have got all my brothers now that I didn't have before. Um, And I'm going to cry. Because I I didn't have brothers before. At least it didn't feel that way in my heart. But I feel like Larry has brought us to each other. So it's just been so weird. It's been so weird. But that's what it's done. It's brought me my brothers. It's, you know, the journal brought me Larry and then Larry brought me them.
Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Vera Carruthers, Soraya Shockley, Sally Helm, Odelia Rubin, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. This episode was reported by Sally. Our production assistant is Julia Press. Fact-checking by Greta Rainbow. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett, and our theme music is by Luis Guerra. Executive producers for Season 3 are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Special thanks, as always, to the Kindred Spirits, our supporters on Patreon, who help make our work possible. In addition to ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content, Kindred Spirits have already heard this episode. They get to listen to everything we make before anyone else. And this week, they're getting a special bonus episode featuring a very special excerpt from our Family Ghosts live show in New York last summer. If you'd like to hear that, along with the special extras that accompany all of our episodes, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits for just $5 a month at patreon.com familyghosts. We are proud creative partners of Spoke Media. Find more great podcasts at spokemedia.io. Season three continues next week. We'll talk to you then, and thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. If you or someone you care about is considering harming themselves, we want you to know that help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or visit their website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Next time, on our Season 3 finale, the Family Ghosts team discovers a mysterious tape. Testing. Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, This is Julian. I am 18 years old. I think I'm the newest member of the church, which is really exciting. A young woman named Julian joins a church in her hometown, which requires new members to complete a very specific test. I'm here to start uh, my faith exam. Julian makes her way through a series of exercises designed to test her faith. And as the exam unfolds, so does the story of her family. Okay, question number three. Describe your relationship with your parents. Um, Well, right now I'm not living with my mom. I don't know, recently I just decided to explore without her. Including a decades-old secret that's been kept from Julian all her life. How did Uncle Greg die? It was an accident. That's next week on the season three finale of Family Ghosts. Okay, here it goes. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio.